Welcome to Decrypt, Asia's first blockchain and cryptocurrency podcast. I'm your host, Tushar. Each week, we take a deep dive into the Asian blockchain scene with investors, technologists, and industry insiders. Go to decrypt.asia to subscribe to our newsletter and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Telegram to join in the discussions. Hi, guys. Our guest for today's show is Jonathan Kokma. Jonathan leads up a blockchain solution called Archain's efforts in Asia Pacific. He's one of the most fascinating people I've met in my journey in this industry. And getting the opportunity to speak to people like him is one of the main reasons why I produce content week in, week out. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Thank you, Tushar. I'm very glad to be here. And I'm honored to uh, be asked to do this. You've had a quite an interesting life. Could you tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and then how you got into crypto and blockchain? So by way of summarizing, I have been at various times an evolutionary biologist, a um, human genome mapping library sequence analyst, a professional musician with uh, two songs in the top 40 radio in the United States, an information architect at Amazon, an epidemiologist, a rare book librarian, um, and an ecological economist. And I might be missing a thing or two. But despite the seeming diversity and plurality of, of these different domains, there, has been, there, there have been a series of constant threads and, and themes that have made them, from my perspective at least, um, all a unity. All right. So, uh, you know, that's that's interesting. I mean, and you mentioned so many things. I was looking at your LinkedIn as well. We've obviously um, had a few meetings which were all very, very interesting. So I want to dig a little bit deeper into each of the different phases in your life. Uh, and like we mentioned, you can perhaps dig a little bit into how each of these phases has led to uh, where you are today and, and the kind of work that you're doing today uh, with our chain. So you started off as an evolutionary biologist at Yale, and uh, you talked uh, about, during our interactions, about how um, cultural and tech evolution very, very closely mirrors or follows biological evolution. So could you talk a little bit more about your experience as an evolutionary biologist and how that relates to tech in today's context? Absolutely. So I... In, in college, I declared probably six different majors, um, but they all had in common that I was trying to find a framework to explain the complexity of the world, um, be it natural or human. And when I really uh, dug deep into evolutionary theory and evolutionary biology, I realized that there was a possible... Uh, foundation for a grand unified theory. So my final year in college, I declared my major to be biology, and I studied very hard, and I took the GREs, and I got ended up getting a full scholarship to Yale University for eight years of study in, in evolution. And my goal was to study evolutionary biology in the context in which the mathematics, the theories are are best developed, which is in biology. But my, my goal was to then apply what I had learned about evolution in its uh, biological context and apply them to 
a linguistic evolution and technological evolution, evolution of, of you know, objects. Um, you know, if you look even at um, musical instruments, um, there's, there's branching and speciation of wind instruments or string instruments. Um, there's, um, you know, branching and evolution of computer languages. And a lot of the, the underlying dynamics of how um, entities speciate within um, technology or culture or language are, are, are the same mathematically um, at a you know, abstract level as they are when new species evolve. Um, the other thing that I learned a lot about um, in, in my eight years at Yale was about animal behavior and sociobiology and how organizational behavior might be an example of, of um, um, animal behavior in a sense, that many of the same di dominance hierarchies and um, tribalisms and whatnot that, that happen in you know, many species, many social species, um, applied also to organizational behavior. So in a sense, um, thinking about the world from an evolutionary perspective and, a, and an animal behavior perspective has kind of been a, a foundational framework about how I think about things and how I solve problems and how I understand my place um, within human systems. So that's fascinating. So, you know, if we uh, focus on the first point that you mentioned, could you take an example to show uh, how the the branching of tech languages um, and biological evolution has a relationship. Oh, uh, that specific thing I haven't really thought deeply about, um, or, or that that specific example of the evolution of computer languages, for example. Um, but let's let's just talk about human languages. Sure. In 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 human languages, a lot of why human languages diverge has to do with geographic isolation, that uh, parties that originally spoke the same language when they're geographically isolated tend to do random mutation in pronunciation and injection of new words, they gradually separate. Um, so if you think, for example, of, of the, the English language and how uh, the original version of English that landed in different territories gradually diverged from the pronunciation and um, you know specific words that are used um, and, and a really interesting example of this uh, that, that that ties into a, um, um, a biological case is that the language that is spoken in the southern the version of English that is spoken in the southern Appalachians of the United States is actually extremely close to the version of English spoken by Shakespeare in terms of the words and the, the metaphors and the pronunciation. And so, so the, the Appalachian version of English has, has been a sort of geographic isolate that captured historically what the language used to be like. Interesting. And the second point that you mentioned about organizational behavior, how did the, uh, I'm presuming while you were at Yale and while you were pursuing your doctoral studies at Yale, uh, you dove into this topic. How has that 
the, how has the study of organizational behavior kind of helped you during your career uh, at the different organizations that you've been a part of? So the, the, the study of animal behavior that I get engaged in theoretically at Yale um, is, is not something that I consciously applied. What I've, I've been in nine startups, um, Archain being my ninth, and my real understanding of organizational behavior, dominance hierarchies, uh, communication, um, really came uh, from living in nine different startups. And I've been in startups that were uh, failures. I've been in startups that were fabulous successes like Amazon. And I've been in a couple of startups where there were crises uh, that required interventions and um, often had to do with um, um, power structures and chains of communication and the formation of cliques. Um, in particular, uh, from these nine startups, I found that when a startup, when an organization, if an organization is lucky enough to get to the, let's say, 30 to 50 people mark, um, strange things happen. Almost, and at this point to me, it's almost predictable. Um, when you get to 30 to 50, when, when you're at the, the, the earliest point where there's maybe, you know, three to 15 people, everybody in the organization can communicate with everybody else and it's not overwhelming. And everybody is pretty much in alignment as to what the, the mission is and the goals are. It can be clearly articulated and it's easy for everybody to do their job without necessarily um, management or direction. When you start getting to the 30 to 50 people mark, though, and I've seen this at Amazon and I've seen it at three other startups, what happens is that cliques nat naturally start forming where people start becoming in their own informational bubble, but simultaneously there's too much communication because everybody had come from a point where everybody communicated with everybody else. And you get a period of information overload where everybody's emailing everybody else and there's not necessarily um, um, healthy sequestration and segregation of communications. And this really became apparent to me at Amazon when we reached about 60 people and Jeff said something that at the time was very mysterious to me. He said, sometimes there's such a thing as too much communication. And as a person, my nickname at Amazon was Monsieur Milliped Senior III because I liked to have my little feet in everything that was going on. Yeah. So my natural yeah. inclination was to be in touch with everybody, to receive every possible email, to contribute to um, you know, marketing and software development and, and um, data modeling and everything else. But it was becoming unmanageable and people were spending more time in meetings and, and in answering emails um, and, and trying to manage their inbox than they were doing the tasks at hand. And so finally it dawned on me that Jeff had made a really, really valuable point that there can be such a thing as too much communication. Um, and the other thing that, that happens um, 
at the 30 to, let's say, 60-person mark, and again, I've observed this in, in three different, four different organizations, um, you get various crises of uh, leadership and um, attempts at... Um, attempts at, how shall I say it? Attempts at redefining the dominance hierarchy. And then third, uh, another thing that happens um, in the 20 to 60 person mark is very often startups are founded by people who are exceedingly gifted um, in in some very specific domain, like, um, you know, um, um, mathematics or economics or 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 what have you, but they don't necessarily have the acumen that it takes to actually run a business. Being a business person is a very very separate skill set than having domain expertise in um, in an area that that defines the origination of the project. And we've seen repeatedly in successful startups that get very large, that the, the people that gave the domain expertise to the project learn to gracefully step aside and bring in trusted business owners. Uh, one thing that, that I know from my own personal experience is that as, a, as, as somebody who's been trained in statistics and, and some mathematics, I love numbers. And I've also been a data analyst, and I just love numbers. But if you throw a dollar sign in front of numbers in a spreadsheet, um, it it becomes challenging for me because suddenly these are not just numbers. They're not abstractions. They're not data points. But they're actual dollar amounts that have consequence to the operation of a business. Um, And I've, I've seen this in other people that are brilliant mathematicians or statisticians uh, who, 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 who adore numbers and, and swim in numbers like a fish swims in the sea. But when it comes down to making budgets or making financial decisions, uh, they're not necessarily the best. So organizations that, that have that kind of domain expertise, um, you know, in a, in a particular area, um, do best when they gracefully shift to doing what they do best as opposed to trying to manage HR and marketing and, and everything else. Um, gradually there's just too many, uh, specialized activities that are required to keep the business growing that any one person, regardless of how brilliant they are in any one thing can possibly be expected to manage. So I'm, I'm talking about founder syndrome essentially. Sure. Um, that's interesting. So you talked about uh, the redefinition of the dominance hierarchy, and you mentioned that in some cases uh, an intervention is required, and you picked out a small example from your days at Amazon as well. Uh, but beyond that, could you give a more specific example from like one of your recent experiences uh, where something like that was required? And what kind of intervention would be required? Is it just the founder kind of stepping up to the role of a business person or, or just sort of stepping aside and bringing other business people in or are there other kinds of intervention that could uh, turn out to be fruitful as well? I'm going to talk about uh, two organizations from my past. 
where in, in one case, this individual was kind of simply unaware that their management style was not working. And there was increasingly rapid attrition of the staff. We had reached about 45 people, but because of the management style of this person, uh, we, were, we started losing people instead of growing, despite the fact that the industry was growing. And they just simply did not perceive it. It was some kind of a blind spot. Uh, and I finally just had to walk into the off their, their office and just be brutally honest about the failure in their management style. And after about an hour, I literally had this very, very strong leader crying and realizing the error of their ways. And that led to um, a series of, of all hands workshops once weekly to be totally open about all of the grievances and why people were leaving, why people had left, why people were contemplating leaving. And for that exercise, I used a, a great book called Getting to Yes. And it just required uh, great, true transparency and honesty. And after uh, about two months of this exercise, the, the attrition stopped and the company started growing again and a good corporate culture was established. And then the company was sold to um, a national or an international company for um, a, a great profit. So it, it took my courage and willingness to confront authority in a firm but loving way to basically save that company. So when confronting authority, it, it's important not to do it in a, um, in a, in a conf confronting authority is not really the, the right firm. Cause I'm, what I'm trying to say is that, that you don't necessarily deal with it in a confrontational way. You deal with it in almost a psychoanalytic way where you try to understand where that other person's thinking is flawed and gradually lead them in a dialectical, almost Socratic discussion to realizing themselves what is wrong as opposed to telling them what's wrong. And I should mention that one of the things um, that, that has influenced my life was studying a lot of philosophy um, as a teenager in high school. I really didn't attend much school. I spent most of my high school days from age 13 to 18 hitchhiking around the United States with a backpack full of books and reading. And ironically, I never got a high school diploma because I was deemed to have insufficient gym credits, even though I was hiking the Appalachian Trail and, and bivouacking in the mountains in the winter and getting my scuba certification in Florida. So, um, so uh, studying philosophy has been really important as well. And it's not something that I explicitly call upon. It's more that it, it became part and parcel of my worldview, just like thinking about animal behavior or evolutionary biology.
All right, that's sorry, that, that's super fascinating, and I guess, uh, and this is a separate point altogether. But I guess it speaks about um, the education system as well, which I'm presuming hasn't changed uh, much since you were in school. But that's a separate um, point altogether. Um, so, following your stay at Yale uh, and your work as an evolutionary biologist, you joined the National Science Foundation uh, to help basically build out the internet, as far as I understand. Uh, could you talk a little bit more about that experience? Yes. Um, so I, during my time at Yale, starting in 1981, I was using ARPANET and BitNet for communication with other academics and scholars around the world, and also using uh, the few databases that were available at the time and doing a lot of statistical consulting. So after two or three years, I became one of the few internet consultants for the entire Yale campus and started writing documentation about how to use Usenet and Listserv and FTP and Telnet and all these other things and was just very, very uh, fluent in that. And um, so, you know, putatively, I was studying biology, but I was simultaneously getting a technical education. And, and that's, that's a, another life lesson I've learned is that in the course of um, learning or, 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 or getting an education or studying, it's, it's very often the case that you can gain expertise in two or several things simultaneously. So even though my uh, degree at Yale was in evolutionary biology, it was really my side work in internet technology that the, the most effective um, non-degree ended up being. So I ended up getting um, a job at the National Science Foundation Network in Seattle, Washington, and I was employee number two for um, uh, Northwest Net, which was uh, the regional network for the internet backbone. At the time, there were 15, 13 or 15 regional backbones for the internet in the United States. Um, there was Northwest Net, there was MidNet, there was, um, you know, e each were like responsible for a certain region in the United States. So the team that I joined was responsible for implementing the, the data centers and the, the transmission lines for the internet backbone from Alaska to Oregon to Colorado. So these people were uh, you know, running network operation centers and developing protocols for the internet backbone. And they were also creating um, educational materials. So one of my gigs was to write documentation on how to use supercomputers, how academics could use supercomputers. And at the time, there were uh, maybe nine supercomputer centers around the United States at the National Center for Supercomputer Applications in Champaign-Urbana and in um, San Diego, SDSC, I think it was called San Diego Supercomputer Center and so forth. So I, I wrote documentation on how to use supercomputers and parallelization um, on craze and, and other machines, as well as um, other kinds of uh, use cases of the internet, which led me to writing books about how to use everything on the internet. And I ended up writing four books, 
on how to use the internet from 1990 to 1995. And um, I helped recruit uh, unknown tens or hundreds of thousands of people to start using the internet even before the World Wide Web, um, which was a great honor. And I also uh, was involved in creating curricula for how to use the internet for K through 12 education. As somebody who had been very dissatisfied with my experience um, in American K through 12 education, I saw uh, many advantages to using the internet in, in the K through 12 educational system. So I also wrote a manual for educators around the United States on how to use the internet uh, databases and pedagogical materials and everything. And, and that, 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 that uh, is sort of a, a, a nice prelude to some of the work I'm doing at our chain currently, uh, which we can talk about in the next episode, where I'm helping to identify people to develop curricula to learn how to uh, work within the R-Chain platform and code in our new language, Rolang. Um, I also mentioned parallelization from my uh, supercomputer usage documentation. And another really strong feature of Rolang is concurrency, which is you know, an even stronger version uh, or a step beyond parallelization back in the early 90s. Parallelization was all that was achievable, but now we can do concurrency thanks to uh, the breakthroughs of Pi Calculus and the Rho Calculus that are uh, Arching's founder, Greg Meredith. So, so again, there's these recurring themes that pop up. When I was doing work on parallelization in the 90s, I never realized, oh, conceptually, this is something that's going to be useful um, 28 years later. So again, you know, all these different things that one can learn in life kind of pop up, can pop up as recurring themes and be useful skills and experiences to call on later. I, I kind of rambled there a little bit, but um, I, I think that answered your question. No, absolutely not. Not at all. I mean, I think that's interesting. And uh, yes, I've, you know, uh, I've followed Greg for a while and I've, you know, seen a lot of his uh, other interviews and, and I know he talks a lot about uh, concurrency and some of the other models of computation. And so, so we'll definitely get into those in the next episode. Um, so, I mean, I'm just curious, you mentioned the manual that you wrote. Uh, from all the way from 1990 to 1995. Uh, so I, I was born in 1992. I started using the internet kind of, um, you know, towards like 97 onwards. Uh, so I'm just curious how the internet was like and what was in the guide actually. Uh, I, I wonder what would go into a manual, uh, into a manual to use the internet uh, when you did write it. So at the time, the internet... The way one interacted with the internet, let's say 1989, uh, most of the interaction with the internet was uh, command line sort of things. So one would manually uh, type a, a telnet and then a numeric um, internet address. And then one would have some sort of command line interface to a database or, um, you know, some sort of... Uh, um, I don't even remember anymore, but, but there were, it was very much a command line driven experience. Or if you wanted to obtain a file from somewhere, you had to type FTP and then the, the IP address and then 
um, and then use the very, very limited number of FTP commands like get and puts and so forth. Um, the other thing that was uh, that, that, that list serves were very, very uh, popular and powerful, and these were topically uh, defined discussion groups. So there would be, you know, a list serve for pollination biology or a list serve for um, APL, the programming language uh, that was kind of popular at the time, or so, so on. And there was also an incredibly vibrant service that I really miss called Usenet, which again was topically oriented, but was really just such a splendid global community. But again, these were all purely text-driven sorts of things. So, so at the time that I started writing, when I wrote my second internet book, it was actually possible for me to collect in a single book just about every single significant service on the internet. Um, so I was able to uh, have a chapter on databases on the internet and had a almost comprehensive uh, list of each database, what it provided, and so forth. Or um, I also had a canonical list of every listserv group on the internet. And, and then I had um, an online little addendum of every single Usenet group on the internet. So the internet was still small enough at the time that one could, in a book, between the covers of a book, actually document everything on the internet. And when I was writing my fourth and final internet book, it was, it was very clear to me that it was no longer going to be possible to keep up with the, the sheer quantity of new services that were being launched, much less all of the detailed descriptions or instructions on how to access and, and what was in them. So uh, at, the, at the NSF Net sponsored company I was at, oh, and this is also about the time that Yahoo came on board and, and made an online catalog of everything on the internet. And this was maintained by a pool of people who um, identif you know, found services on the internet and then made a directory, uh, you know, topically oriented. So it was a hierarchical directory that was maintained by people. And it became clear to me that even trying to maintain online uh, a complete inventory of everything available on the internet through human agents was not going to scale either. So uh, myself and a person who has since gone on to um, considerable um, a brilliant career at a telecom, we came up with this uh, project called Snurfle, which was, um, uh, the word Snurfle in English is kind of what a, a, a truffle hunting dog or, or uh, does when it's uh, in the woods. It, it sort of digs around and, and looks for truffles. It Snurfles. And Snurfle is also, you know, reference to URL. Mm. And it was going to be a way of crawling the, the web and automatically creating an index of everything on the web. And this was 1994, I think. And we submitted a proposal to the National Science Foundation, but they realized that the company I was with didn't have the software engineering expertise to pull this off. And furthermore, the management of the company said, 
you know, actually, we're not a software development engineering company. This is a great idea, but I can't support it. Um, at the same time, um, Jeff Bezos had just moved to Seattle, and through his local Seattle contacts, he heard about me and my internet expertise and my love of books. Um, at that point, I had maybe 20,000 books that I'd accumulated from childhood and grad school and uh, being in computer science. So he, we got introduced and he came over to my house for dinner. And we, this was 1994, I believe, 19, maybe early 1995. Yeah, early 1995. I think it was like January of 1995. And we had a great conversation and he, we're sitting in one of my library rooms in my house and he points to a random book on the, or he says, have you read every one of these books? And I said, oh, no, of course not. Uh, you know, they're here for future reference as well. And he goes, well, if, if I point to a random book on the bookshelves that, that you, had, you had read before, and I just ask you a random page in the book, what's on the page, do you think you could do it? And I said, well, I'll try. So he pulled down a, a volume two of the, Ox I think it was volume two of the Oxford Encyclopedia of Economic History, and he opened it to page 37, and he said, so what's on page 37? And I said, oh, I think that's a map of the history of the Irish potato famine in the 19th century. And he said, yes, you're right. So we, we, we played that game a bit more, and then he said, well, I'm starting an internet bookstore. You clearly love books. Um, you clearly know a lot about the internet. Would you like to join? And I said, well, I have a, a previous commitment for another year, uh, but you know, certainly making any book available to anybody in the world is, is something that I'd like to be involved with. So he said, well, I'll call you in a year. And he actually called me 11 months to the day and said, are you interested now? And the job I was with was, um, this is the job where they told me that I couldn't build Snurfle. Yeah. So I was ready to do something big. And I said, sure, Jeff. I'll join. And so I became a very early employee at Amazon. And um, as an early employee at a startup, I, I, was I, I got to do a little bit of everything. And I joined because I wanted to make any book available anywhere in the world. And at the time, Amazon was only one of, or was only one tiny little example of, I think, hundreds of other internet bookstores. So, you know, there was nothing special about it except Jeff was clearly, you know, a genius. And at the time, I really didn't think, even really know what stock options were. Um, I'd been working at nonprofits and government organizations and universities. So I just joined because of my passion for books. And, of course, you know, Amazon, you know, famously became the everything store. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean that's that's such a fascinating story, and and I want to really dig into that uh, that whole you know process that took you to Amazon and how you know the early days were like at Amazon. I'm sure it was like any other startup. But before that, you know, uh, just referring to the previous point that you made in terms of how the how the interaction happened with the internet. A lot of people draw parallels between the early days of the internet and how the crypto and blockchain ecosystem is today. Uh, do you think that's a fair analogy, a fair 
sort of comparison to draw? I mean, or do you think, you know, it's it's not fair to kind of compare, um, you know, how easy or difficult it was to use the internet and what the user experience was like, or even the size of the internet um, to how, you know, the size of the blockchain ecosystem is today or how easy or difficult it is to use uh, or interact with um, this new technology? Oh, oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so first of all, the, uh, the, the the challenge one of the challenges right now with with um, blockchain um, and cryptocurrency is the whole user experience and uh, right now you really have to be kind of an uber nerd to deal with private keys and wallets and uh, ether scan and all that and and a lot of these things are command line driven and not at all user friendly and that's you know perfectly analogous to where the internet was um, before um, the introduction of Mosaic from um, University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana. Um, so, the, you know, the, the, the whole command line interface, um, numerically driven um, sort of requirements of interacting are, are absolutely entirely analogous. And the also the use cases of the, the internet in the late 80s and early 90s were pretty limited. Um, again, you know, as I pointed out, it was possible as late as 1993 to write a book about every single resource on the internet. And most of these resources were super specialized. They were for um, atmospheric um, physics or, um, or, you know, um, you know, um, there was these things called CWISs, were campus-wide information services, where a university would have a directory of, you know, all of the people and and all of the departments and whatnot. So there were the the, the, the use cases were not compelling for mass adoption. Um, so that was similar. Um, let's see, I, I lost a, a really really salient point here. I'll come back. Oh yes, yes. So. In 1994, I was asked to give a keynote presentation for the National Public Radio uh, annual conference. And, in and, and they wanted me to talk about the internet. So I was thinking, hmm, I wonder if there's good data on the rate of adoption of the internet and the rate of adoption of the telephone and the rate of adoption of the telegraph and the rate of adoption of fax machines and 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 uh, and television and radio, and so I I found some databases on you know how many radios there were in the United States per year and televisions per year and fax machines and so on and so forth, and and then the internet, you know how many internet users there were, and I created um, a set of graphs, and it turned out. The, the the sigmoidal graphs of adoption were almost identical for all of these telecommunications technologies. But the rate at which the telephone was adopted in the United States, the rate at which telegrams, te telegraphy was adopted, they all had almost exactly the same uh, rates of adoption and shape. It was a sigmoidal S-curve where you start off very slow and then you you, 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 you get a um, steep increase, and then gradually it asymptotically approaches to 100% saturation. 
Um, and to me, that was, was hugely, hugely enlightening. And unfortunately, I missed the chance to, um, to leverage that observation and knowledge when you know, additional new technologies like um, uh, cell phones or, or you know, iPod kinds of devices came out. Um, if I had leveraged that observation, um, I could have banked some serious coin by, by following the trends and investing in them. <laughs> and I think, it's, I think the same thing is happening with blockchain. Um, blockchain was, of course, famously invented or announced to the world January 4th, 2008. Uh, January 4th is my birthday. That's why I remember that. Wow. Um, and uh, the rate of adoption curve, the Internet was started in 1969. So by 1989, we were, so, so the rate of adoption of blockchain is going to be faster, probably. And the rate of adoption of those different technologies that I talked about, the, the, um, the, the, the number of years it took did become compressed, but the, 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 the shapes of the curves were, were almost identical. So, you know, again, there's in, it, one of the things that I learned from evolutionary biology is that there exists what are called scaling laws and, um, and power laws. And these mathematical principles appear over and over and over again in the most unexpected ways. So, for example, um, if you look at the frequency distribution of letters in different languages, um, you know, the, frequ the frequency of the letter, the most common letter, you know, in English is, or the, the most frequent letter in the English language is E, and I think the least frequent language or letter is uh, Z or Q. So there's a frequency distribution that follows a power law that's called Zipf's law. And the same scaling law applies to things like um, um, the distribution of block sizes in an urban area. You have you know, a certain number of very large blocks and a certain number of very small blocks, and it follows these predictable curves. Uh, the same scaling laws apply to um, um, uh, frequency of species in, in, in an ecosystem. Um, so, and, and a lot of these laws are completely, it's, it's not at all understood why they exist, but I think these scaling laws are uh, of relevance to explaining the rate of adoption of the different technologies. At any rate, I, I digress slightly, but I'm making the point that I learned about these scaling laws in the biological context, but they turn out to have application as well in, in technology. Yeah, I, I mean, that's that's super interesting. And, you know, I'd be very curious to hear your thoughts on like very quickly in terms of like where we are in terms of that S-curve um, as far as, you know, this is a crypto and blockchain podcast. So as far as this ecosystem or industry is concerned, where do you think, you know, we are? Um, we're about one month away from having the equivalent of the World Wide Web where interaction with um, blockchain and cryptocurrencies is as intuitive as using a web browser. Right. Okay. So uh, I think, for example, the, um, the people that are working on a credit card form factor um, crypto wallets where, you know, all you need to do to interact with it really is, you know, apply your thumbprint and you can immediately, um, you know, for, for personal identification instead of having a private key, um, and then the crypto wallet can be loaded with um, Bitcoin or Ether or, um, you know, we're working on talking to one of these form factor companies to upload, to incorporate um, the, the R-chain 
uh, token rock and then rev. And then you can walk into any store that accepts credit card and spend your crypto without having to think about it and, and without requiring any special hardware at the point of sale. Uh, the intelligence for the conversion of the crypto to fiat is in the physical uh, credit card form factor device. So when, when, when things like that become common, um, that will certainly increase adoption uh, for people to use um, crypto in retail settings. Similarly, in terms of blockchain uh, platform services, there really aren't that many compelling use cases yet to really drive mass adoption. And, um, you know, music was uh, legitimately a very uh, important factor for adoption of um, radio, actually. Um, it was, uh, believe it or not, um, operas and, and uh, performances by, by Caruso and whatnot that, drove people to buy radios. Um, similarly, um, you know, those, those entertainment shows, um, you know, black and white from the 1940s and 1950s with big bands and, and, uh, and visiting musicians uh, to some degree drove adoption of television. And our founder, Greg Meredith, is making a strong case that, that having a streaming music service that is blockchain-hosted um, uh, could help spur adoption, mass adoption of the of, of blockchain. Um, there are some issues with how Greg went about um, implementing his particular solution um, that you know I and some others uh, find fault with. But I think his instinct and his attention to historical precedence is, is fundamentally right. Um, and and I think social networks is going are going to be very, very important for mass adoption because people like to socialize. Uh, so, you know, right now we've got a lot of very specialized blockchain applications for supply chain and um, uh, whatnot that are possibly interesting in niche cases. But again, just like with the internet, um, it will take uh, applications of mass appeal. Um, I, recently, somebody told me the number of users, um, the distribution of number of users for Ethereum dApps, and it's astonishingly low. Yep. yep. And, and it's not a matter of the speed limitations or anything else. It's just people aren't building really compelling apps yet. Yep. yep. That's, all, that's all real world problems for, for people. There's, there's, there's no need many people to migrate from the existing um, worldwide web instantiation of the internet to blockchain yet. There's simply not a compelling uh, use case, or there, there are very, very few compelling use cases yet. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Uh, so uh, I think uh, we were talking about um, your early days at Amazon. So you were, you know, like you mentioned, one of the uh, first 10 employees um, at Amazon and you were actively personally recruited by Jeff Bezos before you decided to join. Um, you mentioned music as well and you've, you know, you did run a music record label, which I want to talk about, uh, talk about as well. But uh, could you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, the early days at Amazon and 
um, I'm sure it was, you know, and based on the interactions that we've had, it was very much uh, like a startup when you joined. Uh, you know, so just very briefly, could, if you could talk about, you know, how were your days at Amazon? And, 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 and I think you left in 2000. What made you leave uh, Amazon in 2000? Could you, if you could talk a little bit about that. Sure, sure. So initially, Amazon, to me, was very reminiscent of being in grad school um, at Yale. I was surrounded by, you know, brilliant people from all kinds of backgrounds. Uh, one of my closest co-workers was literally a rocket scientist from the Jet Propulsion Laboratories. Um, there were medieval scholars. There were, um, of course, brilliant computer scientists and programmers. And it was just exceedingly stimulating. And, um, you know, there, there were very, very, very close friendships. And it was also, for, for somebody like me that, is, uh, that, that likes to learn as many things as I can, it was also just it was a tremendous opportunity to really learn a lot about a lot of different things. Um, so there's that aspect to it. We were also trying to solve problems that had never been solved before. So that, of course, or, or that was exceedingly compelling to me. The, so in the course of being at Amazon, I, I helped start departments. I was kind of a serial entrepreneur within the company. And I would collaborate with people to define the requirements. You know, we would do as much as we could to take on the responsibilities ourselves to fulfill the goals and then figure out on the basis of our own limitations who we needed to hire and what skill sets were, would be required to really make a, a great team as opposed to a prototype team. Uh, there were a couple of times, there was one time at Amazon that, uh, uh, there's, there's two things about my time at Amazon that I'm especially proud of. One is that until 1997, the only way to interact with the catalog was by doing a search by keyword or author or title. And you could get, of course, the specific book that you wanted, but you could also end up just getting a big random list of totally unrelated things and just pages and pages of stuff. And as somebody who loved books and had worked in a library and spent uh, many, 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 many days in graduate school in libraries, I knew that this was not how an online bookstore should be. I knew from personal experience that the serendipity that is allowed by browsing within a subject area, if I were looking for a particular book on uh, population genetics, I would go to the population genetics section of the science library and all kinds of books that I wouldn't necessarily know about. And they wouldn't even necessarily be uh, population genetics books. They might be related. So I kept telling Jeff, we really need to have a way to browse Amazon. We need to have bookshelves. This is a bookstore. And he repeatedly said to me, that's crazy. It's low priority. It would take 12 programmers, or I forget the exact number, maybe it was six programmers, six months or a year to figure out how to do. And one day I just said to Jeff, tell you what, I'd like to try to figure out how to do this. 
I would like permission to just lock myself in my office for six days, seven days, and see if I can come up with a solution. And he said, sure, go ahead. You won't be able to. And then you leave me alone. That sounds great. So I did precisely that. And I, um, it was one of the periods at Amazon where I worked 22 hour days. And on the sixth day, I figured out how to do it. And it was an exceedingly simple solution of childlike simplicity. And it turned out that my solution to implement only required one Perl programmer and one project manager to implement in a month. So, um, and as soon as it was launched, it immediately led to a double-digit percentage increase in the sales on Amazon because, again, it corresponded to the foraging behavior of people in bookstores, which, again, is a reference to or footnote to the fact that I approach problems from a biological perspective. I had studied optimal foraging of, of animals for resources in nature, and I also understood the specific case of people foraging for information from my own experience. So again, drawing on different experiences in life and having a conceptual framework is useful in problem solving. Um, the other thing that I was really proud of was I was part of the team that developed the company-wide data model that so, so, okay, so we had been a bookstore, then we launched music, then we launched videos, and then Jeff said, okay, we've proven we can do it, now we want to be the everything store. We want to be able to sell anything and everything. So myself and um, a pretty small team sat down and created a logical data model of what everything that happened in Amazon in terms of customers and um, suppliers and uh, payments and user interface and customer service. Um, so we created a, a logical data model of Amazon as it was, and then we generalized it to, okay, suppose we want to sell this, suppose we want to sell that. How do we need to change the data model to anticipate the kinds of unique needs that new product lines might create? So we spent... I believe it was three to six months on that. And we came up with a very generalizable logical model, data model, for what would ultimately become the everything store. And, but paradoxically, um, that is kind of what led to my leaving Amazon, which was I joined because I wanted to make any book available to anybody in the world. And when the general data model allowed us to start selling diapers and, and chainsaws and, and refrigerators and, you know, consumer goods. We started becoming the Walmart. Yeah. Um, at that point I just became very disillusioned and this is not what I signed up for. This has nothing to do with books and learning. This is just a department store. Uh, that's what led me to left. I, I, I sort of hung around um, my last three months sort of going, okay, is there anything here that I'm really passionate about? And I found myself just spending a lot of time just chatting with people and going to the cafe and not really being passionate anymore. So I just went to Jeff and said, I'm burned out. This is not who I signed up for. I'm leaving.
Right. And so you took a little bit of a break after that and started a music record label. Um, and so is this something that you were always passionate about or did it happen by accident? Well, I've been a lifelong musician. I, I first learned violin when I was six and I was terrible at it. And then in my teen years, I discovered um, guitar and bass guitar and actually became very, very proficient to the point where um, in my teenage years, I was playing um, at bars with a fake ID and uh, playing solo acoustic guitar and getting paid 50 or $100 a night. Um, but then I became very interested in, in academics in, in college and grad school, and I, I stopped playing music. When I went to Seattle, I started playing music again in public. Actually, I, I should mention that my last year of graduate school, my National Science Foundation full scholarship ran out. And uh, again, in my kind of like entrepreneurial, um, if there's a problem, solve it. I started playing guitar on the streets in New Haven, um, where Yellow's located, and busking. And I ended up paying for my last year of, of you know, food and lodging at Yale from playing guitar on the street. So I realized that, you know, hey, I'm pretty talented. People will pay me for this. So in parallel with the time that I was at the National Science Foundation and some other startups, I um, started playing music in Seattle and hooked up with some musicians that I really connected with. And so but, but when I went to Amazon, I had to put that aside because Amazon was so all-consuming. Um, there was one three-month period where I didn't go home once. I pretty much lived in my office, and there was a shower down the, you know, down the hallway, and I just worked my office for three months. So that was clearly not, it was not possible to yeah. simultaneously do music. So, but when I left Amazon, I reconnected with my musical partners and recorded two albums right away, and um, then recorded a third album, which got into the Grammy process for best album of the year and best single of the year and had my first top 40 radio hits. And I thought, wow, I'm really good at this. Um, and people started saying, yeah, you're really good. And why did you start a record label? And that was a really bad decision. Um, because as I was talking about with, you know, other people, when, when I said there's four or five companies I've worked with that suffered from founder syndrome. I had a bit of founder syndrome when I started my record label because I'd been very successful in grad school. I'd been very successful with the National Science Foundation. I'd been very successful at Amazon. And I just kind of assumed if I was successful at all those things, I can run a record label. And I also neglected the fact that there are, you know, power laws and trends in society. So I started a record label without much experience running a business. And I also started a record label in 2004 when the entire music industry was collapsing. So I had two things going against me. One, uh, a failure to recognize my own limitations and two, just inexorable um, uh, economic and social trends. Um, I did end up getting another song in top 40 and we, you know, our band played, I don't know, maybe 500 shows in the United States and, and Europe. 
Um, so that fed my ego and made me think, you know, I'm really good at this. But simultaneously, the record label was not doing well. And finally, I just woke up and realized I should not be running this record label. I should find someone else to do it and focus on what in the music industry I'm good at, which is, you know, recording good songs, good music. So uh, with the help of some of my staff and with me being brave enough and being, uh, uh, being humble enough to realize other people should be in control. I did turn the label around and it ended up becoming profitable despite many other labels, you know, failing. And, um, uh, it continued to provide, um, income to me, um, for years later. So, you know, I, I know from personal experience, uh, the importance of fighting founder syndrome and being, having humility and, Focusing on what you do really well. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that you, I mean it's it's. I think all the way from you know your work um, as a biologist to uh, your work uh, with the National Science Foundation, Amazon, um, and the music record label. I mean, it's just it, it's just so fascinating. And, and so most recently, and just before you were with Archain, you were working with Earth Economics, um, which I understand that you were trying to determine the economic benefit uh, that the environment provides to human beings? Yes, and actually I think this is the thing I'm proudest of um, in my entire life. So I was, Earth Economics was in the business of determining what the dollar value of any ecosystem in the world or, or the, the economic contribution of any ecosystem ecosystem anywhere in the world to the economy. And uh, there's an existing theoretical framework called ecosystem services. And there are 23, 26, depending on who you talk to, categories of ecosystem services that can be dollar denominated. So for example, um, if there's a forest on a hillside, um, the forest provides erosion control. If the forest wasn't there, you'd get landslides. With the forest there, you don't get landslides. So you can calculate, okay, if the forest wasn't there, then what would be the cost in road maintenance or repair or damages to cities downhill from the landslide? So that's a dollar value. Similarly, a forest may provide water purification such that if the forest is intact, you don't need to have a, a build a water purification system um, and so if, if you know you don't have – so, so you know if the forest wasn't there, you'd have to build a water purification system that would require initial capital outlay and then ongoing maintenance. So the forests – so if the forest provides water for 50,000 people, you can say in the absence of the forest, you'd have to build um, a filtration plant sufficient to provision 50,000 people. So you can say the, the water purification value of that forest is equivalent to the – the man-made uh, uh, sort of approximation of that. And similarly, there's storm surge protection, where if you have, um, if you have marshes, um, when an incoming hurricane, when there's an incoming hurricane, the marshes reduce the storm surge, reduce the flooding as the hurricane comes in. There's you know, 23 different categories or 26 different categories where you can actually say the dollar value equivalent that that ecosystem provides. 
So this company was using, um, you know, just Excel spreadsheets, and then to do a to do a calculation, they would have to spend a year or two years to determine the economic benefits, let's say, of the Louisiana uh, estuaries near New Orleans. Uh, they did a brilliant job, but it took them, in that case, I think, three years using Excel spreadsheets. So I was hired as the the information architect and director of research and development to create um, the world's largest computational engine to for any given piece of land or ocean in the world determine what that parcel or extent uh, generated in benefits to the economy. And I like to think of it as giving nature a voice at the negotiation table because when economic development decisions are made, um, it's easy for people to say, oh, we're going to generate X thousands of jobs and, uh, um, you know, this will generate, you know, road building opportunities and employment and, and uh, you know, we'll extract so much minerals from this area, you know, extractive value. Or, you know, when we cut this forest down, you know, this is the value of the wood. So my, the system I led the creation of would allow um, conservationists or concerned citizens to then say, oh, Mr. Forrest, you know, person wants to get down the forest. Sure, you know, there's that much economic benefit from your activities, but there's this much economic cost and destruction and loss of benefits that actually exceeds your calculations. So... This system has now been, it took four and a half years to build. It was a very, very complex project. And it has been used in 40 countries and by the United Nations and um, you know, many organizations like the uh, Environmental Protection Agency, the United States, and so forth, to preserve, uh, I don't know the exact figure, but I believe it's, it's tens of millions of hectares throughout the world. So that to me is my biggest contribution of my life to the, to, to society. Yeah. I, I, that's super fascinating. And so uh, you, you finished in, you finished this project, you mentioned four and a half years, uh, some somewhere around uh, the beginning of 2016. And then you joined our chain in 2017. How did this career transition take place? I mean, was there something about the blockchain and crypto ecosystem that kind of attracted you uh, to this industry, and then you chose Archain amongst the multiple projects that are available, or was it more coincidence in terms of because I know you were based out of Seattle earlier as well, um, and I know Archain is based out of Seattle as well. So was it more of coincidence, or you know, uh, was it like you were actively looking to get into the industry, and then you kind of narrowed it down to Archain? It actually mirrored remarkably the situation with my getting into Amazon, I didn't seek Amazon out. Coincidence kind of made it happen. Jeff had heard about me, and um, even though I had never helped build an internet bookstore before, I had some of the relevant skills. Similarly, in 2016, I, I thought I, I, I was just going to retire for the rest of my life and just you know, write my Otter biography, my life story. My nickname is Otter. That's a long story in and of itself. So I was going to write my autobiography. But, you know, I was nonetheless keeping in touch with 
technology developments and I was reading about blockchains and I, I saw its potential value, but I was so burnt out from earth economics after five years of thinking nonstop about the, the millions of ways that we are destroying ecosystems and planetary sustainability. I just had an existential crisis, frankly. Uh, so, so I wasn't reading any more about um, coral reef collapse and methane cloth rates and all that. I was just reading generally and noticing, yeah, there's a lot of things happening with blockchain. Um, and Greg Meredith, the, the founder of the, the, the leader of, of our chain and the creator of the underlying mathematics that he's been working on for 25, maybe even 35 years, um, knew about me and contacted me in January of 2017 and said, I'd like you to join this project. I met with him for lunch, like I met with Jeff for dinner. And I just told him, I'm really burnt out. I, I'm not ready to do anything for at least a year. And like Jeff Bezos, he contacted me about you know 11 months later and said, are you ready? And at that point, I was like, you know what? I'm tired of being retired. I want to do something. I want to find one last big project uh, to do, one last grand challenge. So we met, and on November twenty, we met on November twenty sixth, and on November twenty eighth, I joined. And um, at this point, we, I think, we paused because we're, from what I understand, we're going to do uh, another. Yeah. Uh, that's, yeah. That's yeah. So that's why. I- yeah. I mean, I think that was an incredible episode. I mean, I, I think, you know, like, I mean, since the first time I met you, I think this is something I've told you as well. I've been just fascinated by your story and it's been incredible to kind of record this uh, as a podcast episode as well. Uh, so, you know, like we discussed, uh, we'll jump into and dive deeper into our chain and what makes it special um in the in the following episode but you know thanks jonathan i think it was uh, an incredible episode and thank you so much for taking the time out yeah yeah um it's it's been a lot of fun and i, I look forward to more um excitements and contributions if you enjoyed this episode please subscribe to this podcast on itunes google play soundcloud or wherever you listen to podcasts like us on facebook twitter linkedin and telegram and subscribe to our newsletter on decrypt.asia. This is your host, Tashar. Thank you for listening.